Hello, and welcome to season two of our podcast, The Midnight Ramblings. I'm Jenny Silberstein, and I'm with my dear friend from Ladue Junior High, Carrie Austin Rosenthal. If you are joining us for the first time and you're wondering what this is all about, Carrie and I are two friends who can no longer sleep at night. So we decided the best thing to do would be to create a podcast about what we and others think about when we can't sleep. So as we like to say, let's get ready to ramble. That is our guest today, Colette Sartor. Her debut linked short story collection, Once Removed, won the Flannery O'Connor Award for Short Fiction, the New York City Big Book Award for Short Story Collections, and the Juror's Choice Award and Short Stories Award from the National Indie Excellence Awards. Her work has appeared in Kenyan Review Online, Slice, Carve, The Rumpus, Harvard Review, Prairie Spooner, Colorado Review, and elsewhere. She has taught writing for almost 20 years, currently at UCLA Extension Writers Program, as well as privately, and is the executive director of the Cine Story Foundation, a nonprofit mentoring organization for emerging TV writers and screenwriters. So thank you so much for joining us, Colette. We are so glad to have you here. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Well, what we do typically on this podcast is we just ask people what they think about when they can't sleep. So girl, what do you think about when you can't sleep? When I realized I was going to be on this podcast, I started thinking about, well, what is it? Like, what's the common theme that keeps me up at night? And I realized especially looking at law school, because I did go to law school before I went to graduate school for creative writing. Um, And law school was the first time that not only did I have a hard time falling back to sleep when I woke up in the middle of the night, I had a hard time sleeping at all. Like I couldn't get to sleep when I finally did. I, from drinking NyQuil, thank you, because I didn't realize it had (laughs) alcohol in it. Um, And back then, nobody wanted to give you, like, I I didn't want to ask for medication. Nobody takes medication. Yeah. Um, But I couldn't sleep at all. And then when I fell asleep, I would wake up and I couldn't get back to sleep. It was just, it was this vicious cycle. And I started realizing that so much of my sleep issues came from what I'm now calling imposter syndrome. I was absolutely convinced that everything I did, I got there because nobody realized I wasn't qualified. Mm. I just somehow snuck my way in and someone was going to find me out. And I don't know. I think part of it probably came from the fact that You know, I had this very tumultuous family. My parents adored us. Um, They always encouraged us. And by I will say us a lot, by the way, because I am an identical twin. And when you grow up as an identical twin, you can't help but think of many things as us. Uh Um, And we have a younger brother, too. But really, it was we were much older and we were also the girls in an Italian family and you know, the boy is the anointed one, especially when he's the younger one. He can do no wrong. And the girls are to be perfect until they go off and get married and become someone else's problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> it works. So, you know, 
you know, little kids, when you're at that little kid phase, when you, you believe that you have the power to change your environment because it's all about what you're doing. I got it in my head. And I know my sister did too, that if I was perfect, if I could get things done, everything would be okay. And when I couldn't, I would wake up in the middle of the night and there would be this litany of everything I'd done wrong. Every single thing, even if it was as simple as, you know, I said something inadvertently that made my friend mad and I would obsess for hours in the middle of the night about how to fix it. How could I have been so stupid? And now she's going to realize I'm a terrible friend and, 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 you know, it was really hard to stop that obsessive thinking because it started at such a young age. Um, and I think also, quite frankly, part of my imposter syndrome came from being a twin because now don't, don't get me wrong. She is my best friend. She is the person I am closest to in the world. She's also the oldest twin. And apparently when we were kids, my mom said we were, we went to Montessori school and my mother said, you know, this is supposed to be this nurturing environment where it's all, it's very flexible. And, and my mom said the teacher would walk out, would walk us out holding my sister's hand like this saying, take these children because, because apparently Lisan, because she was the older one, she was the protector. I was very shy. I was very afraid of doing the wrong thing. And Lisan had, she's the older sister. And she knew that's how I felt. And she would talk for me. And it used to piss the teachers right off. Oh my God. Wow. But we did have this dynamic where she would go off and make all the friends and just clear the path for me. And then I could kind of ease my way in all the while having the back of my head. But if they really get to know me, mm. they're going to realize I'm not her. Like I'm just not as confident and funny mm. and this and that as she is. But, you know, we went to school together all the way through college. You know, we got, we, we went and we went to this tiny all girls Catholic school because when we were, we had always gone to public school. My parents were super young, you know, working their way up. They didn't have a lot of money when we were growing up. But there had been a lot of issues at our, our, our high school that we were supposed to go to. You know, there, somebody got shot in the butt. And well, this is in suburbia, suburban New Jersey. Yeah. But it was where also there. Uh, Scotch Plains. Okay, because I... Oh, I know where that is. I used to live in South Orange, New Jersey. I'm not from there, but I um, lived no. there for many, many years. Yeah, so we, can, my, we, can go, we can go all Jersey in a minute. I was going to say, my <laughs> best friend in the world, um, one of my best friends is from Westfield. The other is from West Orange. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, but so we ended up at this tiny little Catholic school where we had to be in all the same classes. You know, in public school, they separate you out as much as possible. Um, but in private school, we were together all the time, private, all girls, Catholic, and our bus said Oak Knoll school of the Holy child, Jesus. (laughs) Fun times, real fun. Um, and then we decided, you know, we both wanted to go to the same college and we really talked about, we said, is that going to be a problem? 
you know, is that going to be bad for us? We're like, you know what? No, this is the one, because it was such a special school where we both were very artistic. And yet my father, the PhD in chemical engineering said, you can only go to a liberal arts school if you major in chemical engineering or at least try. (laughs) My, My sister, God love her, took one semester of chemistry and I remember because we were in the same class and we used to do this all the time because we would get, I would get to a question on a test that we were both taking and realize, holy shit, she's not going to know the answer. Because we studied together and I would obsess for the rest of the test that she wouldn't know the answer and she would do the same thing. So we're in, this, we're in this lab exam our freshman year and I look over and her head is on the desk. I'm like, what the fuck is she doing? And she tells me later, because then our TAs who loved us went up to her and said, what's going on? What's going on? She's like, I don't know anymore. I'm done. You know more than you think. Finish the exam. She's like, nope, I don't know anymore. And I just said, like, oh, my God, she can't. She, what is she doing? And But she didn't take any more chemistry. She didn't take any more science classes. She became an art major and then an English major. I stayed a science major for two miserable years and then became a social science major. I studied psychology, which I adored. Um, but so we had this really tight relationship and I wrote her coattails. I did. I mean, she went out and made the friends still in college and we were like this. And then mm-hmm. I got to law school and it was the first time where people didn't look at me and say, hi, because they didn't know my name. You know, I mean, for years, seriously, our our name was either twin, hi twins, or hi, because nobody knew who I was. And I got to just real quickly because they couldn't tell you apart or because because I couldn't tell us apart. Okay. And to be honest, even there was a point where in high school, it was a tiny little school, I cut all my hair off. I cut it super short and she kept her hair long like this. Uh And the principal still would come up to me and say, I can't uh, remember which one of you cut your hair. Oh, oh God. Come on, guys, Seriously. pay attention. I mean, our friends never did that, but people didn't know us that well. And I got to law school and all of a sudden I had a name. Nobody knew I had a twin unless I told them. And I had to make my own friends. And she was in Italy studying sculpture and photography which is what we both loved. Mm. And I was in law school realizing I have no idea of what these people are saying and I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be here. Yeah. Um, and the, my insomnia just, just blossomed. It, I had always had it. And so those racing thoughts, those thoughts of I don't belong here. Mm. How the hell did I get here? Someone's going to find me out. I better go through and figure out every single thing I don't know Mm. so that I can fix it before somebody finds it out. And I think that the insomnia is like a gift in that way because it's a red flag. It's like a sign that you are absolutely in the wrong place. So my question is like when you had this red kind of flag of insomnia coming up and all the racing thoughts um, and you're no longer you know, an appendage to your sister or nobody knows your name or whatever, you know? So tell us the next bit of it. Like how, what, um, inspired you then to kind of end up where you are now? 
or to get out of law school? It took me a long time. I, I, I actually graduated and practiced entertainment law for, even though I had gone to law school because I had been a psychology major and that's what I loved. And that's actually what I was really good at. Mm. Um, but I felt like, you know, back in the eighties, late eighties, when I was in finishing up college, domestic violence, violence had become, was the new hot topic, believe it or not, but it was yeah. new. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be an advocate for women and children. And, and I felt as if it was twofold. I felt as if a law degree would make me a better advocate, make me a more powerful advocate mm-hmm. um, for women and children. And to be honest, I love my family, but I come from a family where success is measured monetarily. And ultimate success is usually accompanied by having a penis. <laughs> and I was never going to have the penis, you know. <laughs> I wanted to have that authority. I wanted to have that degree that would give and that would bring in money, would make me financially independent, and would demand respect. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this very Italian grandma. I mean, um, I'm Italian on all sides. But I had this very Italian grandfather with a super thick accent. He grew up in Italy. He happened to have an American passport because he was born here while his parents were picking potatoes in Idaho. Mm. Um, but he had this very thick accent to the day he died. And I know when my father was first sending us to college, and it was a, you know, a very expensive college, and my grandfather would just say, Tony, why are you going to waste all that money? They're just going to get married and have babies and... But then when I went to law school and I went to a really good law school, then he started joking because he finally realized what these schools meant. Um, because God forbid I do anything small, I had to go to the best schools I could possibly get into. And they had, so like basically I have Ivy coming out of my ass. Mm-hmm. And, but it meant my, my family would at least recognize that. So my grandfather, right. oh, you know, okay, you got to be the one. You've got the degree you got to help me divorce your grandmother. It was a joke. They loved each other. <laughs> but it was his favorite joke because he got, it, it got, it gave him a chance to tell everybody where I went to law school and that I was a lawyer. You know, it was his way of doing that. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you were saying, keep going. Oh, yeah. Um, so. It was his way of doing that is what you said. Yeah, it was his, it was his way of acknowledging it. But, you know, so I went to law school to do this, uh, this thing that I really wanted to do, you know, to represent abused women and children. I got to law school, realized, and I went straight from college to law school, realized I hate this with an absolute unadulterated passion, but I'd never quit anything, didn't know how to quit anything, and and, and felt like I need to do this if my family is going to see that I can be more than what they expect of me. Hmm. And now mind you, they always, they loved that I was talented. They loved that I was an artist. They loved that I was a writer, but the message was always, if you do an artistic career, there's a problem because that's not really, really a career. That's what, that's what, that's what disturbed people do because the artists in my family were considered somehow broken. Hmm. 
And, and so even if you were artistic, that was something you did on the side. But if you really wanted to be successful, you had to do something serious. Um, and so I was determined to do something serious. No wonder you were up at night because it sounds like the conceits you had set up in your head, i.e. either the ones coming from your family that you need to be a man to be successful or you need, I mean, or um, you need to be a success at school or you need to have a career, you need to do all these things. Or if you're an artist, you're bad. All of these conceits were not true. And you were living up to the untruth of those conceits as opposed to who you were, which was none of those things. None, um, not one. So I can see, so, so I have to just ask you at what point did, mm-hmm. because clearly you are an evolved, I can tell just by speaking with you. And also I know you've written this amazing book and I'm, I'm really interested in at what point you, you sort of took ownership and, found your own voice and really stuck, you know? You know, it took a few breakdowns. I mean, no joke. I, I had my first one in law school mm-hmm. and, I, and I remember my poor father and he, he really, I was daddy's little girl. And a lot of the issues in our family were between my parents and seeped into the rest of the family because, you know, when there are s- secrets in a family, kids know. And they find them out. Oh, yeah. and I was always that kid who was, you know, back then you could slip, you know, the, the phones with the handheld phones with the cords. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to slip the cord out of the, the uh, jack out of the phone so I could pick up the handle and listen in on phone calls. Oh, wow. Because, because you're, you're looking for control, right? You're, you feel like, well, knowledge is power. And if I know these things, I can somehow find a way to insert myself and make everything better. So that was the other thing. I had to fix everything. Um, and so in law school, very early on, I realized this was not for me, but I couldn't quit. You know, I, when, I was, when I was away, I had gotten into one law school, but it wasn't my top law school. And while I was away in China singing with my singing group in between, like over the summer, I got into my top choice off the wait list. And my father called me in China to tell me, and he said, don't worry, I already accepted for you. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, it's what I would have done, but okay. So, I mean, there was that message that you don't quit. Um, but I just couldn't do it. And so right at the end of my second, my first year, I had a breakdown. And I called my dad and I said, and my mother couldn't talk to me because she didn't understand. All she ever wanted to do was do something like go to law school so that people would respect her. And she was the artistic one. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody respected mm-hmm. her. And my father, I remember my father saying to me, honey, if you need to go talk to somebody, I get it. That's okay. It's not something I would ever do. <laughs> but I to do it. And, and I got to tell you guys, he meant that with so much love, but he is a man of a certain generation. Mm-hmm. And right. he really didn't get it. Um, and I knew there were certain things he wasn't going to get. So I did that. And that helped me get through law school. And then I became a lawyer. And I have to say, and I, I'm ashamed of this and I shouldn't be, but each breakdown was precipitated by a, a relationship gone bad. Mm-hmm. Because quite frankly, I think the thing I wanted to fix the most was my parents' relationship. Well, and I just have yeah. to say, 
in there and just as an observer, it was the only thing that was given credence in your family were, oh, yeah. were getting married and having a relationship. So to fail in that is the one thing you weren't allowed to fail in, really. Yeah. Um, well, and, and to fail in that was to, and God, God help, I love my yeah, mom. I mean, she was a wonderful person, but that meant I was my mom. I would get treated because my father always loved and adored us. And it was very clear that it was him against her. And are they still together or, or have they passed away? Um, she, she died at the end of, they had been married almost 50 years and she oh died. Mm. It sounds like your mother, you know, never got the respect that she deserved. She was truly an artist from what you're saying. Yes. I'm just curious about, um, you know, many times when you have these kinds of situations, your thoughts are kind of like steam, like rising, you know, and um, there's, there's nowhere to put them. So how did that translate into really writing and making that decision? Like, I'm going to claim this as, as what I do. It took a long time. Um, you know, because the, my other release valve, because and another aspect of this, my mother became more, my mother had always had a weight problem. That was something that every, and an eating disorder, quite frankly. Uh, she was very, she became morbidly obese. And so when I was in law school, not only was I reading, but when I finally just couldn't sleep, I would wait till the gym was open and I would go to the gym and I would exercise and exercise and exercise because I didn't want to be able to, I didn't want anyone to be able to criticize me professionally. I didn't want anybody to be able to criticize my body. And so those two things together just kept me going. And it took me a very long time to say, wait a minute. Yeah, those might be outlets, but that's not, all they're doing is letting off a little bit of pressure. They're not helping you feel satisfied in any way. And your life, because, you know, I went on to be an entertainment lawyer because I figured, okay, I need to make money. And I might as well go do it as an entertainment lawyer. And all of my best friends had moved to LA. And so that's where I was going to go. And I got thrown into this career where, I mean, being a lawyer, you fight for a living. Even if you're a contract lawyer, you don't have to be a litigator or a trial, trial lawyer, lawyer to fight all the time. That's what lawyers do. Negotiation, you know, you can, there's this um, theory of uh, negotiation called getting to yes, which was a big deal when I was in law school. Yeah, very few entertainment lawyers, very few agents are willing to get to yes. And how can we all agree? No, fight it out, you know, scream and yell. And I was not a screamer. I was not a yeller. And I didn't like what I was doing. And it took me years to finally say, you are going to have another breakdown. And in fact, I did. But you are going to just continue to go through this cycle unless you start doing something you really love. And I sang for decades. I trained, um, um, I trained as a, as a class, I was classically trained. I trained for 12 years as a singer and I got out to Los Angeles and I had a teacher and it was wonderful, but I knew I was never going to be a professional singer. So I thought, you know, I love, I've always loved reading. I've, I went to law school cause I'm a really good writer. I'm going to try writing fiction, you know, because I'd written fiction in high school and then I gave it up. I even wrote a little fiction in college and I'm like, you know, no, that's not what serious people do. So 
I don't, I think I was 30 when I started taking creative writing classes, like my first real creative writing classes at UCLA Extension. And I'm so lucky to have that program um, because my mentors are the ones who, who encouraged me to go to graduate school. And actually one of my mentors is my mentor and my friend to this day. He helped me get a job at UCLA Extension. He's just, he's a wonderful human being. Um, and, but it took moving in-house. I had been at a boot. First I went to a big law firm, moved to a boutique entertainment law firm, and then moved in-house to Columbia Pictures because supposedly as an in-house lawyer, you work fewer hours. So I took classes, but of course it's never true. When you're a lawyer, you work what you're supposed to work. But I got to a point where if I had a class and I was in the middle of a meeting and the class and the meeting was going to make me late for my class, I would excuse myself. And that did not sit well with many people there. And it started meaning I got the shit work and I got a bad reputation. And I'm like, I don't care. I work hard and I know I work hard. But that doesn't mean you get my whole life. So the more I started believing in that, and quite frankly, the more money I socked away because I needed that. But it took me eight years from graduation to finally quit law, take a year off, write and apply to grad school. And I wound up getting into the Iowa Writers Workshop where I had to take myself seriously. And it was the first graduate school because you know law school is miserable but at this graduate school like we would sit around you talk about like writing was respected when you go to Iowa City they have embedded in the sidewalks quotations from famous writers who went to Iowa mm. and it's like people if you say and if you unlike in LA if you say you're a writer people are like oh what screenplay are you working on like, <laughs> No, right. I write fiction. <laughs> Iowa City, like, that, you know, the, the program is well known there. And people respected that you were a writer. You know, it was a big deal. It was, it was a, and we respected each other. And we talked about, we called it ass in the chair time. How much time did you have your ass in the chair today? Um, we compared meds. Like, what did we take to keep ourselves even so that we could write? <laughs> <laughs> It was like the, again, these were my people and I didn't even know I had people. You know, I did. I had my best, best, best friends from college who were all creative people. You know, I was the only one who went on to do like this professional degree, you know, because I even look at my friends who are landscape and landscape architecture. Those are professional degrees, but they're creative professional degrees. Um. So that's when I started slowly but surely saying, okay, I can call myself a writer. This is something that I'm taking seriously and I can call myself a writer. Has it changed how you are in the middle of the night? Has it changed anything? Um, yes and no. I'm not a writer and I never will be a writer who... You know, I went to I went to grad school with a bunch of writers like me who were, maybe weren't as confident, but writers who had a ton of confidence and could back it up. Like I went out to dinner once one night with a couple of guys, sweetest guys in the world. Um, 
but there's a bit of dick measuring going on that night. And, and, you know, they were, they were talking about you know, how great their projects were. And I was just kind of sitting there listening. Cause I was a first year and one of them was a second year. One had just graduated and this dear sweet guy who was incredibly humble in every other setting looks at this other guy and says, well, you know, if I didn't think I could be the next Hemingway, I wouldn't be doing this. Oh God. <laughs> Here's the thing though. He could back that up. He is that good of a writer. Mm. But even if I thought I was that good of a writer, I could never, ever say that. I just couldn't. No. You know, and, and a lot of that is there are times when I'm writing and I'm thinking, oh, wow, I really can write. And this is going okay. And, and I'm writing and it's working and I'm producing work. And I always know when I get to that high point of, wow, this is going great. I'm like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to crash. I'm going to crash. And sure enough, that'll be the night where I wake myself up thinking, how dare you think you can do this? What gave you, it's that hubris thing. When I was in, when I was in Catholic high school, we had very few nuns, but I had this one nun and she loved me and I thought she did. And I did this oral presentation and I have this, as you probably have noticed, I am not very good at editing myself. I tend to talk a lot. <laughs> And so, and, and back then, especially like, I just didn't know what to take out. So my presentation went way over and she sat me down to give me my grade. And she said, I'm going to give you an A plus for content and an A minus for hubris, because I think it is your hubris and your pride that caused you to go over because you had to let everyone know exactly how much you knew. And that has been in my head ever since. So whatever confidence I wind up building up as I write and say, oh, you know, this is working. I like this. This is working. I know there's going to come a point where I think I have no idea what I'm doing and how dare I think that I am capable of being a writer. And it drives me insane because there's, you know, that there's that, there's that grounded part of me, that adult part of me, that 55-year-old. Yes, Lisa, and I said my age. She, she's much more willing to say our age than I am. So she'd be laughing at me right now. But there's that adult part of me that's really matured, that picked just a wonderful man to marry after, after I really was convinced my picker was broken. But, you know, I met this wonderful man. We have this great kid. We, you know, we have our struggles, but I really love the life that we built together. And yet I still have this imposter syndrome, especially professionally, but in pretty much all aspects of my life. And I mean, this, the, this imposter syndrome that you've talked about throughout, I mean, I think, listen, this blueprint is laid early in your childhood. Um, and what do you, if you were to, think about it what do you make of it what do you make of it like where it comes from why you can't stop it from from kind of edging its way in you know it's it's interesting because both of my parents to be honest were so thrilled for us because Lisan and I were both such hard work and we we have very comparable skills you know when you're identical twins we had the same interests we and so we were never in competition with each other which was wonderful um, and my parents were encouraging of us both and they insisted that we both be treated as individuals. They never dressed us alike. 
if one teacher favored one of us over the other, like, no, you don't get to do that, you know, because they are equally capable. Um, And they were our cheerleaders on so many levels. And at the same time, because my father so clearly adored us and so clearly had us in, oh, you, you're like my side of the family. You're like us. Mm. Even though all of our artistic ability, except for my singing voice, which came from his mom, all of our artistic ability came from my mother's side of the family. And, and he gave us so much love and he was so withholding from her that there was competition between us and our mother. And she adored us. And yet there were times that she just, it was very difficult for her. Yeah, I, I just feel that this sadness when you talk about her that she lived with, you know, um, that, you know, she could never really be who she wanted to be. And she was sort of in a way, I mean, was she proud of you? Like when yes. you when you finally figured out that you, you went to this writing program and that you were an artist after all the stuff with the attorneys and. She, you know, she was, I think when I first started struggling with being a lawyer, she was angry because her attitude was, how dare you? And she never told me herself. I give her a huge amount of credit. She told me later when we, when, when we could talk about it, but she was angry because all she could think was, if I could have gotten a law degree, I would have killed for that. People would have respected me. And she, you know, she turned down, she had a, she had a, um, a scholarship to get her master's in education at Penn, at University of Pennsylvania, and she turned it down to follow my father to Ann Arbor, where he had um, a Science Foundation scholarship to do research and get his PhD. You know, that's what she did. And she didn't want to hold that against us, and I know she didn't. But it was hard. And she came from a, a family where her mother had mental illness that w- went untreated. And her mother took it out on mostly the girls. And my mother showed the signs of that. You know, I'm just sort of, I, I mean, this is really, really interesting because the fact that you're using the word imposter syndrome, I'm so sort of juxtapositioned to what I, I sort of see which it was like, it was never that you were an imposter. It was almost like you were just trying to break out. And um, I, I think you, and the other thing that I'm thinking about too, is that it, you, you it, several times you've used the word, how dare you, how, how dare I, whether it would be from the nun or from your mother, how dare you quit law school, how dare you. And it's interesting to me because I think to myself that all of these, you know, a good teacher would have said, you need your confidence and your hubris to be successful. You need it. You need a little of it. That's what makes that guy in grad school, while annoying and maybe not so much fun to be around in that moment, it probably allowed him to get through those very difficult times when he was struggling as a writer because he believed in himself, or at least he would pretend to believe in himself. And with your mom, it's almost like you took on her pain as if you created it. And you didn't, you know, she made bad choices that didn't work for her. And that's fair. And that's, that is sad. And you can have compassion for that. But the truth is, is that there's nothing, whether you did what you did or not, nothing would have changed for your mother. 
Oh, yes, that's very true. Believe me, because there did come a certain point once I did make the right choices, the right choices. for like, I, I never thought about it that way, that I just was in basically round peg, square hole, trying yeah. to find my, my, my round hole. Mm-hmm. Um, when I finally did leave law and my, my poor father, because honestly, the other thing with my dad is complete worrier, absolutely always worried that we were going to be okay that we were going to be safe. And he was scared of decisions he didn't understand that he thought might put us in peril. And I love him for that because I see him, he does it with our, our kids, our, you know, his grandchildren. He is the biggest worrier I've, and I never realized that because with him, he expressed worry as anger. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want to call it bullying because I didn't feel bullied, but I felt pressure, you know, pressure. And I said, you can't do that. But when he finally realized how miserable I was and that I could not stay a lawyer, he was supportive. He really was. He was so supportive and so was she. And when I started to be happy, it was easier for me to extricate myself from them and from their lives. And quite frankly, it also helped that I had moved from the farthest point possible from New Jersey and still be in the United States. I moved to Los Angeles <laughs> and so did my sister. And, you know, I felt bad because, you know, as Italian daughters, you're supposed to stay close because eventually you're going to be the one who takes care of them when they get old and all that stuff. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't live my life being that close because I would get to enmeshed again. When I finally had that distance, it made me so sad that she was so sad but I knew I couldn't do anything about it and and I could accept it better from far away Mm -hmm. and from a happy point of myself. Well, I think this is such an interesting conversation just about parenting. And I think sometimes, you know, it's like you have to go through all of these experiences and live out maybe what your parents thought was right until you kind of come out the other side of it. Now that you sort of are like on the other side of it and this whole story unfolded, um, I don't know if you have your own kids or if you know, you know, parents, what um, from your perspective going through this and being a writer, I guess what, I don't like to use the word advice, but what feedback would you give to this in terms of like having a, you know, gone through this where your parents thought this was the path and it turned out that it wasn't? Well, you know, I, I do have, I have a 16 year old son. You know, I took, I, I waited till, and I don't think it was a necessarily a conscious thing, but I waited until I was in a much happier place to find someone. And, and it, ironically enough, I met my husband. I had already quit. I, I had, had applied to grad school. I had my applications in and we met, I had just broken up with a man I'd been with for three and a half years. It was a miserable relationship. I can count on one hand the number of times that man met my sister. And that tells you a lot about. Yeah, I'm shocked by that. And I hardly know you. Yeah. <laughs> um, because like we see each other all the time. And But I met my husband in December of 2000, I believe. And I got my acceptance to Iowa in February. And it was the day my first, my sister's first child was born. And I remember going, she wanted to kill me. I remember crying on her bed saying, 
but I love him and I don't want to leave him. <laughs> but I knew I was going to Iowa. And we went down to the, he and I went down to the cafeteria and we're like, well, you know, we know we're getting married. So we can move in together. I'll stay here and take care of the cats. We'll travel back and forth. Mm. But, you know, this was a guy like no one I had ever dated. He was kind. He told, like, asked me out on a second date on our first date. He, when I flew home for Christmas, like we had known each other three weeks. This is when you could still meet each other at the gate, like at the gate where you take off. He was waiting oh, yeah. for me at the gate. I hadn't told him what plane I was taking, nothing. He found out. He brought me my favorite book, this, that, met me at the airplane. You know, and just kind and he listened and he was calm. I don't think we've had, I don't think we've never had a fight the way my family defined fights. And I realized part of the reason we work together and mind you, I have the far better end of the deal. <laughs> but part of the reason we work together is because I needed to be with someone where I could have the kind of relationship that my kid could see and say, oh, look, those are two people who really love each other. Mm. So that all the bad shit that happens in families, because bad stuff happens. I know my husband, my kids already told me, oh, mom, you screwed me up so many ways. Um, but <laughs> he has that basis. He has that foundation of these two people really care about each other. Which is huge. No, the thing that I is, okay, so I'm now revising what I said. <laughs> I've had, <laughs> kind of a new observation. I mean, it's, it's sort of just, okay. So I feel like you were never an imposter. Now, I, I, I don't mean to be telling you that, but, but this is just my observation. I actually believe, because you were never faking, you were just prioritizing different parts of yourself being there for your family, making your parents happy, completing things, all things which seem to be things you care about, which haven't changed. You've just said, but I also matter. And as that came up, right? And, and so yeah. I don't, the word, that's why the word, I kept listening to you say imposter and I was like, but it's part of who she was, but now she is able as she's developed as a human being, as we all have, to yeah. prioritize and make time for these things that feel better to her to prioritize while still, I bet you still complete everything you do. I <laughs> bet you still care about your family. I bet you still, um, I'm trying to think of all the things you've said. I write stuff down cause I have a terrible memory. Um, Me too. you know, but you've sort of living your ethics, but just proportionate to who you really are more to, to, to what feels com more comfortable to you. And I, but the thing that's so interesting to me, is that you're hard on yourself about it because isn't that true that that's what we all do? I mean, that is the, I don't know, the whole thing of life is kind of saying, okay, well, right now I'm going to give myself permission to be a good daughter and not to focus on my writing. That's what feels best to me right now. It's the best I can do right now, you know? And I don't know, does that sound true to you or do you think I'm just full of total shit? <laughs> it does sound true to me except that so often and again it's this it's not legit to be a writer I, I mean it's yeah. it's not legit to be creative that's so ingrained in me that I feel like 
I spend so much time saying, prioritizing everything else above my writing because I don't have confidence. Or permission. I don't have permit yet. It really is the permission. For me, I say imposter because what I tell myself is, well, you're not really a writer anyway, because if you were really a writer, you would already have four books by now and you would already, or you would already have done this or you would already have done. So you're not really a writer. Now in the front of my mind, I know I'm a writer, but it's that midnight voice. It's that voice that keeps me up till two or three in the morning or the voice that woke me up this morning, probably around four and has kept me up ever since. Um, saying, yeah, I call bullshit. You know, you're telling them you're a writer, but you're stuck right now. You are journaling, but you're not producing the work you should be producing. Big fat lie, you know. But that is a writer. I mean, the thing is, it's like, you need to tell that fucking voice to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, I think you should hear me at night going, shut up. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> she gets. She does get told. <laughs> well, you know, you kind of you can't really help the thoughts that are coming, but you have a lot of control about the reaction to the thoughts, right? So, you know, and I say that so much because it's so true. And what it is is like developing this emotional muscle that is re- in in reaction to the racing thoughts, which are kind of like a wild dog, like out of control without a leash. So our job is to develop this, this sort of emotional muscle and put a leash on a lot of that, you know, chatter and then just kind of say, yeah, there it is. You know, that's that, there's that thing I do and kind of notice it. Like, you know, it's this sort of cloud passing, but it is that pivoting of your thoughts that doesn't let it stick. I've seen so many people who have this voice really quieted to the point that it's not um, running their life. It's not the engine. It's sort of like the were, you know, kind of there. Um, But they're able to kind of um, overcome, you know, being at its mercy. So funny you say that because no joke, just I think it was last week, I, I didn't like the way I had handled something. I had misinterpreted an email I got about um, something where I thought I got an award, but in fact, it wasn't exactly what I thought I got. And then I felt like I had to explain myself in an email and I was embarrassed and I wasn't, I was just feeling awful over something that was really silly. And it was just a miscommunication, but I was pounding, it was dinner time. I'm pounding myself about it. And I'm just getting more and more. I can feel myself tense like this. So I go to dinner, sit down for dinner with my family and I'm monosyllabic. I am so upset. I'm usually the one who makes them talk at dinner because I have a six-year-old son and husband who do not speak unless I make them. (laughs) So usually I can relate. Yeah. I have a different conversation, right? So I'm not speaking. And my son is actually talking to me, mom, you okay? And all of a sudden <laughs> I'm thinking, I stand up and I pick up the, a dish and I think, holy shit, you know, I can keep acting like this and showing him that when things get complicated, you shut down and you act like an idiot. Or I can say, you know what? This wasn't that bad. This isn't a big deal. I still have the opportunity 
the people on the other side pr- probably are not interpreting what I sent them in the way that I'm interpreting okay. it. I always give it the worst read. And you know what? It's time to let this go and be happy again. Well, and oh my God, I did it. I wow. Yay. <laughs> it wasn't just, ta- it wasn't just like a little pep talk that I ignored. Like, Great. I actually said aloud, you know what? I'm done with this. What are we doing tonight? Let's go watch TV. You know, it's yeah. almost like what you're saying. If I can, if I can, um, I don't know, rephrase it a little is that it's almost like you're saying, cause the very first thing you said is that you felt like you had to be perfect. And the thing is, is that once again, these conceits we create make us cray cray. And really, <laughs> the truth is, is that you're perfectly human. And so you make mistakes and you learn from your mistakes. And that's how that goes. You cannot avoid that. And yet, and I want you to know I relate to this to- so totally because I specifically did this in the world of men, which how stupid is that? That I was trying to get that right without, without having any failure whatsoever. And was so disappointed with myself when I did have failure. And by failure, I mean, I learned something, God forbid, and then found what was better for me. So it's interesting, as Jenny is saying, it's what you do with it. It's almost also how you position it in your mind. Are you failing or are you just doing what you need to do? It's sort of like, are you eating food, you know, to to feed your body, which is what you need to feed your body and grow? Or... Are you, you know, going to tell yourself you need to starve just because you should, you know what I mean? I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, just yeah. don't, just don't do it. Don't make mistakes. Oh, it, it just, it felt, and I keep telling myself, I think I even journaled about it so I can go back and read and say, okay, remember that because it is still hard. That will always be hard for me. You know, that's not my unfortunate, you know, you go back to that comfort zone. That's not comfortable because it's good. It's comfortable because it's familiar. Mm-hmm. And my comfort right. zone that I grew up with was God love them. My parents were both, are both brilliant, inventive, lovely human beings who were an incredibly flawed couple who didn't understand, because they were also very young when they married, but they didn't understand that the way they behaved themselves in their own relationship had a deep and lasting impact on all of us, mm-hmm. on their kids. And I'm so, I'm obviously I'm constantly repeating their mistakes, but I think less than I thought I would. And quite frankly, they did better than their parents. I give them huge amounts of credit, but I also think I made different, I made a conscious decision about the kind of person I wanted to spend my life with because he was the kind of person who got me. We are completely different, but we complement each other. Mm. And we, we have been able to create an environment where every, every marriage ebbs and flows, but we never doubt that we love each other and that we're happy that we're in it. And the thing that is so impressive to me is that here, Jenny and I, I can hear us. We're both like trying to say, but you're so amazing. You're so amazing. <laughs> and the thing is, is that you are. And, and I think that it's that you, the minute, the minute it sounds like you start to say that to yourself, you're like, you get smacked on the hand by that nun. 
Well, we oh, yeah, definitely. That, that nun is getting put in the trash can. You go into that trash can, little nunny, and we, I love nuns. I have nothing against the nuns. No, exactly. At just particular moment. But it's almost like, I mean, it's, we, look, you're going to make your own set of mistakes. Our, your parents made mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. I make, we all, it's all going to happen. And it's funny because isn't it true that in the parenting is where we find our own growth? Like I have learned so much when I, when I, I see my kid doing what exactly what I do. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's what I do. I, I don't want you to do that. And then I'm like, well, then you don't do that. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and I, a different friend of mine, a very good friend said to me once, she's like, I'm just so mad that, um, that my daughter is doing this thing. And I'm like, but we're still doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Spending our whole life trying not to do it. How can you expect her not to do it? Like, like, you know, anyway, I just had to say, all well, that. I, one question I, I would have is, you know, looking back, you know, um, and parallax view, like, of your parents and what they did and, and all of that, like you, you said, they did their best, you know, you love them. They're inventive people, all of that. Like, what is your wish? You know, I mean, ch- children always have a wish, like, you know, how it could have been different, like what you could have or wanted to say to them, you know, when you were on the phone listening to their conversations and, and knowing what you knew that now and knowing what you know now in your own relationship. Honestly, what we always wanted to say to them was get divorced already. (laughs) I hate to say that because I wanted my mother to live her own life. Mm -hmm. And I watched her chase him, you know, and, and want him to be her everything. And I, and he couldn't, nobody should ever be your everything. And I think that was a lot to put on him, but also that was never going to be their relationship. He, for what he is, who he is, and I adore him. Uh, but I know who he is, and and quite frankly, I think in some ways he had a very realistic vision. He loved her, but he knew they weren't good together. And yet, he's very old-fashioned, and you don't get divorced. And and I understand that. And also, my mother really needed him. Like he was worried about her. Um, and they had been together since they were 15 and 16. So to him, it's like, she's family. You don't leave family, but you also don't do the things that you do, you know, that went on in their relationship on both sides. So to me, the best thing that could have happened, and I actually did, I never said it. I did actually say it to him at some point. And I did say it to her, we, and my sister and I, and I think even my brother at one point or another, we all said, just get divorced because then I feel like she would have been forced to find her own voice, Mm. but she was never going to do that. She wasn't, you know, she was, there were, she had too many issues and ultimately she died at 70, Mm. um, morbidly obese, diabetic, um, and we're not sure what killed her because uh, we, they, my, I wasn't there and I would have really pushed for an autopsy. My dad did want an autopsy. And basically the doctor's attitude was, which was her whole life. Well, she was fat. That's what caused it. 
And that broke my heart because that is how she was treated her entire life. So I just cannot escape the metaphor there, right? Because there's all the stuff around this person that she is and she never quite got out of it. Got out of that the way of chiseled, chiseled out. Yeah, she never chiseled out. And and the other thing that I'm sitting here thinking about is that, you know, really your mom was suffering really from what we all do. It's almost like we all need, it's funny, we had a different podcast about hubris, and hubris was bad in that podcast. And in that context, hubris was bad. But in this context, you can see how you need a little hubris to get through this life, to think, yes. you know what? I'm entitled to that. You know what yes. I am? I'm entitled to break through this fat. I'm entitled to get a divorce. I'm entitled to figure out what I want to do with my life. No, I mean, I'm just resonating with, with what you're saying with so much, um, you know, so many women that I see and men, but more women um, that you live in, in this marriage or, you know, relationship that's not workable, that stay because their spirit is too sore, you know? And, and that is like your mom. I mean, I think that comes from the Bible. I, you know, where, you know, you, she was, like you said, she was broken. She couldn't break out of it. And so the weight just piled on. Right. And she, she couldn't, find her voice. And as much as, you know, you all knew that they needed to get a divorce and as much as your dad was very loyal and he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, he was afraid maybe in his own way that to, to leave her and what would happen to her. I don't know, but I think so. Yeah. But I just think I agree with you, what you're saying, Carrie, that sometimes breaking through and having that hubris and saying, you know, I, I, my voice needs to be heard and I deserve to be heard. And it's almost like there was a silenced part of it um, with both you and your sister. And even when she put her head on the desk and just said, I can't do this anymore. You know, Um, there was attraction there that was kind of being laid out. Like you're supposed to do this. You should do this. And it, and then it just came like the, like the, like, you know, the engine, the little engine who could, like, I think I can, I think I can. And then, you know, why, why should I, <laughs> you know, why should I? Exactly. I, the why should I, oh my God. I, I can. Find, yes. But I, why should I? But I don't I? have to. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. I, I think that that's a perfect place to sort of take a deep breath and, and say, wow, that that's really, I have to just say, like, when I hear people say the things you're saying, Colette, I feel like it, it reminds me of all the things I need to remind myself. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it reminds me, okay, wait, you're just a fucking human being, Carrie, get over yourself. Like you don't have, you know, it, it is so relieving to me in a way to hear it. And also to look at what you have accomplished. You have a great marriage, a great son. You have a life you appreciate and love. You're still good to your family. You're still true to yourself. I mean, you're really very inspirational to me in that you, you, you well, no, really, because you've, you've, you're just really talking about how you got there. But we couldn't expect that at 20, you would be where you are today. We just couldn't, that's not a realistic yeah. expectation. So it's very impressive. And to that end, I always hate, I'm not good at this transition, am I, Jenny? No. I really quite no. suck at it. But it's time now for the hot flash round. Does anyone want to do it? <laughs> I know. So I suck so much. Um, 
Are you ready, Colette? You're starting me. Okay, good. Which best describes your approach to aging? Let nature take its course, color inject or cut me open as, as is necessary or see all of the above? See all of the above because I'm never going to stop exercising. I've got a, a much younger kid. I need to physically keep in shape. That's also part of my whole psyche, being fit. Um, but I'm not opposed to <laughs> a little... Nip it'll take me a while to really do that, but... Yeah. Maybe eventually. Yeah. Which do you prefer, puberty or menopause? Menopause. Oh, my God. I mean, I hate menopause, but puberty sucked. Yeah. <laughs> You are not alone. Yeah, it hit me early, too. Um, Pick one, screens or no screens? You mean the one I think I should pick or the one I know I No, the one that you pick. (laughs) Screens. Excellent. Do you have more to say about that or should we just... Uh, You know, I love writing on my computer. I love the convenience of it. I love that I can, I mean, now mind you, I still handwrite. I've got my journal. I got like, it's sitting right here for me to journal right after we're done. I have several journals. Um, But there's something about just being able to get my words on paper that quickly that I love. And also I can do my little research and I can check the news and... (laughs) It's a great procrastinating tool. It really is. But, but it also like Scrivener. Yeah. Uh, I use Scrivener for um, my, the novel that I'm writing. And I love that I've got that electronic tool that allows me to store so much stuff that I used to have to keep in my head or write on note cards or this mm-hmm. and that. I still use note cards, yeah. but in a different way. Yeah. Um, what is the best thing about insomnia? <gasps> oh, Reading. I actually miss, I, and my sister, my sister's solution, because she also has bad eyesight, has been to listen to audiobooks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can't quite get myself to do it. So very often I'll still be on my Kindle, which of course keeps me up because of the light. But I think I'm going to, and I love physical books. Like I have, I have this book, uh, this this is one of the best short story collections I've read in years. Uh, It's called Admit uh, Admit This to No One. Uh, by my friend Leslie uh, Petrozik, I think I can never say her last name. And it's set in DC. It's incredibly timely, and I am obsessed with it. Ooh, um, I'm it. And the thing I love about reading at night is yeah. all of the stories that I'm telling myself get drowned out by great stories that other people are telling me. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. What is the worst thing about insomnia? I think we know, but let's hear it. Exhaustion, (laughs) anxiety. The next day, I am always so, and I I don't know about you guys, but especially when I was a lawyer, I I can't have a clock in my room where I can see what time it is because as soon as I catch a glimpse of the time, I start counting down. I only have one more hour or I only have three more hours. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. Anxiety. Okay. I agree with that, actually. What is the best and worst thing about having kids? Um, Can I start with the worst? Sure. (laughs) I have become the stupidest person on the planet, apparently. Absolutely. I know nothing. I deserve every eye roll. um, And I need to be corrected at every turn. (laughs) 
Um, don't love that. <laughs> Having said that, I am so in love with this kid who is so clearly his own person. Um, through quite frankly, no, like he was who he was the day he was born. And he's such a sensitive, kind person that I always want to have in my life, you know, and, and I hope that I can maintain that kind of relationship with him because nothing is a given. Yeah. And I'm so lucky to have him as part of my life. That is so beautiful. I love that. Yeah. What has been the most surprising thing about being middle-aged? I thought, because I kept myself in shape, I have been a work workoutaholic since law school, and I have a naturally fast metabolism. I used to. So I thought I wouldn't age. I really <laughs> did. I thought it would take me a, a it would take a really long time for my body to show those signs of age. And I was really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, let's flip that. What is the best thing about being middle-aged? I really don't care about other people's opinions nearly as much as I used to. In fact, um, and excuse me for saying it this way, but I am very much, my friends and I have this really, really close group of friends. We've been, they're my family. Um, and... We really have lived in the, that we have really reached the part of our lives where um, our attitude is basically, fuck off if you don't like me. I like you. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. and yes, if I do something horrible, tell me and I will apologize and I will find a way to fix it. Or if I can't fix it, I will find a way to do better. But if you don't like me just because of the way I look or the way I talk or the way I write, that's your problem, not mine. Right. Love that. If you had to pick one word, a cuss word or otherwise, to describe middle age, what would it be? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> a cuss word? Or um, otherwise, whatever you want. Um, well, because, uh, you know, I'm from New Jersey, so cursing is, is my, my mode. Um, I probably shouldn't say that word. Oh, say it. Just say it. Cunty. <laughs> it's a cunty place to be. It's just like, come on, guys. Really? All of these indignities, you know, as you get older and all of a sudden, you know, if I cough a little hard or I sneeze and that catches me off guard. Or if all of a sudden I've got those days, I have gut issues. And those days where all of a sudden I'm lying in bed, like with my knees in the air, trying to say, just uncramp, just feel yes. better for yes. God's sake. And I don't bounce back the way I used to because I'm old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that is a perfect way to go out, right, Jenny? That is a perfect way to go out. <laughs> I agree with you. I think that's that, that word. It, yeah. It just. And I, I say that with hard. great love because I love that word and I use yeah. it sparingly. Yeah. Yes. yes. It, it has a, it, it's like the Academy Award of cuss words. It is. <laughs> it is. So we'll just put it up there and it's a good place to, it'll be on our shelf as like a shining star. Well, yes, I just yes. have to thank you so much, Colette, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to meet you and you are just really very, you're really cool. I think that's the best. Yeah. you guys. Yeah. 
Um, and to our listeners, thank you as well for joining us today. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. To learn what we're all about, visit us at themidnightramblings.com where you too can become a fansomniac. And of course, be sure to tell all of your friends because your support is necessary to make this thing take off. So for The Midnight Ramblings, this is Carrie Ofstein-Rosenthal and Jenny Silverstein. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>